on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Cross doesn't have to be cross. And I stole that from a longtime NIDA faculty member, uh, Judge Matt McCoy. And it's true. Not all witnesses fit neatly into a villain role. Sometimes they're just confused or they're mistaken. Sometimes they don't have a full picture or they've allowed their emotions to cloud their ability to tell the truth. And so Cross gives you the opportunity to get the rest of the story. Why would you rob yourself of the opportunity to put the words in the witness's mouth in front of the jury the way that you want it phrased, the emphasis on the words that you want emphasized. Um, I think you're really losing an opportunity when you don't ask a leading question in with the control that you want to have. That was Ronnie Lotchoy and Kate Sandlin And this is May the Record Reflect. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is all about cross-examination and impeachment, two parts of a trial that can cause some pretty jangly nerves because they ask that you think and respond in the moment. But as our guests, Ronnie Lott Choi and Kate Sandlin tell us, that's not entirely true. And as with all things trial, preparation and knowing your case inside and out will go far in quelling your nerves and boosting your confidence in the courtroom. I'm pleased to introduce this month's guests because Ronnie is my new colleague here at NIDA. She's our education director and works in curriculum development and faculty recruitment. And Kate is a member of our Next Generation faculty for 2022. They are fabulous. This conversation is jam-packed with great advice, and their chemistry and playing off one another is just fun to listen to. Here's our interview. So today we're going to be talking about two parts of a trial that can be pretty challenging, especially for lawyers early on, and yet they are both so important to get exactly right. And those parts are cross-examination and impeachment. So let's start with cross, since it comes first. Ronnie Lot Choi, what are the purposes of cross-examination? What are we hoping to accomplish? So to me... Cross-examination is really the opportunity to question the other side's witnesses. It's your chance to test the credibility of their testimony. Sometimes you'll hear people say it's your chance to make them look bad or catch them in a lie. But I'm going to push back against that a little bit um, because I like to tell my students when I teach cross-examination, cross doesn't have to be cross. And I stole that from a longtime NIDA faculty member Uh, Judge Matt McCoy. And it's true. Not all witnesses fit neatly into a villain role. Sometimes they're just confused or they're mistaken. Sometimes they don't have a full picture or they've allowed their emotions to cloud their ability to tell the truth. And so Cross gives you the opportunity to get the rest of the story. You can attack witnesses on their lack of ability to perceive things. Was it nighttime? Was it dark? 
Um, were they wearing their glasses? Now, occasionally you do have a witness where you really get to go all in, all out, and show the jury that this person is not trustworthy, that their testimony should not be given credibility. And in those cases, that's the purpose of cross. And you can impeach them, which I know we'll talk about later, but you're always going to use it as a chance to tell the rest of the story um, and to collect ammo for closing argument. That's really what we're doing in cross-examination. Um, and occasionally, cross-examination is a chance for you to look really good in front of the jury, which is exciting, too. It's, uh, it's what you see in TV, and it's where, if there are Perry Mason moments, you're going to find them. Kate Sandlin, you are next. Do you have anything to add or that you would like to, to say about that? I completely agree with Ronnie's statement and Matt McCoy's statement that cross doesn't have to be cross, right? Like it's so much about chipping away at the witness, just little fact by little fact by little fact. And although maybe sometimes you do have those big, exciting moments, the majority of it really is just the kind of death by a thousand cuts, chip, chip, chip. Um, and that doesn't have to be super cross or contentious. That can be, um, actually you know just these no fight facts we're getting the yes 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 so i really like that ronnie said that because i, I completely agree cross-examination can lend the appearance of being in the moment and on the fly but that i know is not strictly true you can do advanced preparation for it and be in the moment at the same time kate how do you plan for cross-examination Yes, yes, you can do a lot of advanced preparation and you do have to be listening in the moment so that you can respond, but so much of it is advanced preparation. So I always start with the closing. What issues am I going to be arguing during closing? What are the what are the facts then that I need in order to argue those issues? Um, and I'm talking about argument, right? We're talking about inferences and reasonable conclusions that you can draw from the witness's testimony that you're going to be arguing during closing. You don't need the witness to confess to the crime to argue that he is guilty, for example. So what facts do you need to get out of the witness? Um, and, and, and part of that is also thinking about what facts can you get from other witnesses? For example, your friendly witnesses on direct, right? Think about those facts that you can get from your witnesses, but what facts do you have to get from this particular witness on cross in order to argue what you want to argue during closing? And once you've narrowed down kind of what facts you need, then you can craft your questions to establish those facts. So you want to start with those easy questions first, the questions where you're going to get yes, 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 right? The, what we call the no fight facts um, and establish kind of a base layer and then move toward the more difficult questions um, that you might get a little bit of pushback on, um, but hopefully you've established enough of a base layer to box them in um, to whatever answer you're looking for and, and whatever answer is the most reasonable. Um, but thinking through a lot of those things is definitely what I would do to prepare for cross-examination. Um, one thing I love that Kate just talked about is really focusing on what facts you need for your closing argument, which I think is great because one thing you don't want to do on cross-examination is repeat the direct examination. And that's a mistake I see really new, fresh attorneys make all the time is they repeat what happened on direct examination instead of focusing on what they need to build their case. And preparation is how you avoid that. 
you prepare to ask the questions you need. So I think that's exactly right. Um, Ronnie, since I've got you um, in the hot seat right now, are there any considerations that you should make about the judge as you prepare and execute your cross-examination? Yeah, certainly. Um, so different judges um, have different tolerance for what is allowable, how you interact with the witness. So first, I think you should always be respectful with the witness. Um, when Kate and I coach mock trial students or work with younger attorneys, we tell them, you always want to be the most reasonable person in the room. And so you should always be that person with the judge, with witnesses. But some judges are very protective of the witness. You're really not going to get much of a short leash at all um, in things even like approaching the witness. They don't want you close to the witness. They are protective. Um, they're going to have much less of a tolerance for um, argumentative questions. And so you've really got to know the judge and know how far you can get with them. Um, some judges also are um, going to be very strict on their evidentiary rulings as well. I, I think this will probably come up a little later too, but some judges interpret anything testimony close to a subject they've um, de determined inadmissible as opening the door to having that testimony come in. And so with a judge like that, you have to make sure you steer clear of certain topics as well. Um, Kate has had the experience um, because of her criminal law practice of being in front of the same judge frequently and can probably share more on that. I, in my private practice, we were in front of different judges all the time because we were in many counties, even states. And um, so I didn't really have the experience of being in front of the same judge all the time. Yes, I think being in front of the same judge all the time, you get to understand you know, what their, I guess, co their comfort level is with the rules of evidence, which is important because you need to know, do I bring a hard copy of you know, these rules so I could hand the judge or you know, read to the judge what the actual rule is? Um, sometimes you might need to do that if the judge is not as familiar with the rules of evidence. but. Once you've been in front of the same judge for so long, you know, okay, this judge you know, has a grasp of this, this, and this, and I know that I'm not going to need to have that kind of backup text reference right there in court. Um, so that's important, I think, for the preparation aspect of it. And also, I also want to emphasize that I think it's, this is, again, like it keeps just going back to preparation. This is why preparation is so important that you have crafted good questions that you know are proper, that you have the confidence in not just your form of the question, but yourself. <laughs> and also um, that it, and, and the rules of evidence as well, so that when you get into the courtroom, you know that no matter what judge you are in front of, your questions are proper, your technique is proper, um, and you might need to have that backup, you know, hard copy rule to, to show that to the judge. But um, I think knowing that you are doing it correctly and having that confidence goes a long way, no matter what judge you're in front of. I'm going to make a sports analogy, which is dangerous for me because of my lack of substantive knowledge. But um, one way to kind of think about it, too, is you're going to always make mistakes. You, at least in my experience, you're never going to have a perfect game. You're never going to have a no hitter. But 
you don't want unforced errors. You don't want the errors to be because you didn't prepare enough or because you didn't anticipate um, pieces of evidence or uh, things like, what does this judge prefer? And that all goes back to preparation. The mistakes are going to come, but you don't want them to be because you didn't prepare enough. That's a great point. How do you get to know a judge you don't know? So I feel very fortunate to have a pretty wide network of, for me at least, uh, former students, before I had former students, gen- you know, honestly, people I knew through NIDA um, and people that I taught in other trial programs with and friends of friends. And it's not uncommon in, you know, I'm in alumni groups and things like that to ask on Facebook, has anyone been in front of Judge Grimberg in the Northern District before? Can I ask you a couple of questions? And obviously you want to avoid any conflicts of interest, but people are willing to have those conversations. And you're not talking about anything that comes close to you know, attorney-client privilege, you're just asking for general impressions. Another really great resource is um, the listservs for the professional organizations like Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, for example. I know they're always asking about judges on there. So that's another another option. Yeah. And then if you practice in a firm, that's a really common question to go out to the whole firm as well. Who's been in this court? Who's been in front of this judge? For folks who don't have that those resources, maybe you're new. Like Kate said, bar associations are a great place to start building those relationships and networks. It sounds like there's no excuse not to know. <laughs> yes. In this day and age, I think that's true. We're also lucky here in the U.S. we have open courts. When you can go sit in a judge's courtroom and, and watch a trial, watch them do voir dire, watch them do motions. That's not true everywhere in the world, but it it is true here. So that's another option. I think every new lawyer should be doing that. Also because it just helps your kind of anxiety level and your nerves to see that there are other lawyers that are appearing in front of these judges and they mess up too. So that's just kind of a side point of exactly why I think Ronnie's idea is just so important. Conventional wisdom says that you should always stick to single fact leading questions during cross. Under what circumstances is that advice too constricting, Kate? So I love this question because one question I get all the time when I'm teaching is, um, can I ask an open-ended question if I don't care what the answer is? (laughs) And my question, I always answer that question with a question, which is, well, why do you feel like, what are you trying to get out of it? Why do you feel the need to, to do that anyway? So, um, so to answer your question, I think there are always times when you might not want to stick strictly to the rules, right? You have to be able to adapt. That's just part of the game. Um, for example, if you're cross-examining an expert, it, there may come a time when asking a compound question is appropriate and you don't want to not do that because the rules say that you can't. Um, So you have to be flexible. But I think in general, I'm a big believer in sticking to the one fact, short, you know, 10 words or less uh, question. Um, I think, you know, cross-examination is not a fact-finding mission. You should be you should know the answer to every question that you are going to ask 
if you don't know the answer, then you should not be asking that question during cross-examination. But why, um, so if you're asking, for example, an open-ended question, why would you rob yourself of the opportunity to put the words in the witness's mouth in front of the jury the way that you want it phrased, the emphasis on the words that you want emphasized. Um, I think you're really losing an opportunity when you don't ask a leading question in with the control that you want to have. Um, and I guess the third option really is a lot of people want to hear the witness say on the stand, I don't know. So they might ask an, op an open-ended question, for example, um, you know, how do you perform, you know, this field sobriety test? And they know that the, the officer is not a DUI officer, and they know that the officer is going to say, I don't know. Well, if you, you're running a risk there because, first of all, you don't know for sure that that witness is going to say, I don't know. You may think that they're going to say, I don't know, but you're really running a risk. And instead, why don't the more kind of appropriate, the more effective way to do it is to build up the facts showing that the witness doesn't know. Maybe they haven't had the training. Maybe they haven't memorized the every page of the manual. Maybe it's a topic they don't have a lot of experience with. So ask the leading questions that illustrate the same point, And you can argue on closing the conclusion that you want rather than asking the open-ended question where you're getting giving the witness the control to hit it out of the ballpark, going, continuing with baseball analogies, <laughs> hit it out of the park um, with an extensive answer that makes them look good. So again, I'm a big believer in the single fact, leading questions, sticking to the form. Um, and I think you're in danger of losing the witness if, whenever you don't stick with that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, what Kay was talking about, you know, asking all the questions that lead up to what the answer is, I think is great. You're making a real mountain out of little molehills here. It's way more effective to hear the witness admit over and over and over and over again that they haven't done something or that they don't have certain training than asking one big um, conclusion question. And like Kate said, you really, if you ask that open-ended question, you have to live with the answer. And you don't have any control over the answer at this point. So with her example, an officer who doesn't have any DUI training, you ask that question and now the officer tells you every, every semi-training, everything he's ever done that should substitute for the DUI training. And now you've got to go back and do the work of breaking that down to show why at the end of the day it's not the same. You have to live with the answers. And so I'm also a big fan of sticking to the one fact leading questions. You know, I work with lots of students and what I run into all the time is the students, they learn how to do the one fact leading questions, and then they go and they intern at a DA's office or a public defender's office. And they see these amazing trial attorneys who've been practicing for 10 years, 20 years. And they come back and they want to ask all the open-ended questions because they saw an amazing defense attorney ask one open-ended question. And it has to be like, you know, when you're that person, when you've been doing this for so long, when you know your judge, when you have that kind of experience, go for it. But early in your career, especially, and when you first start 
um, doing trials, I think those one fact leading questions, you can't go wrong. And every, every mistake I've made on cross-examination, if I ever go back and look at it, the problem starts with my question. And I probably wouldn't have made that mistake if I'd asked a better question. Right, because think about asking a compound question if you have maybe two or three facts in the question and the witness doesn't agree with you and the witness says no. Well, now you don't know which part of the question they've disagreed with and you're going to be stuck in front of a jury backtracking trying to figure it out. Don't even... And don't appeal. Exactly, right? That's a great point. So don't even go there. Just stick with the one fact question. It makes things so much easier and it makes, it makes sure that you have control over the witness. So you both have something um, fun lined up for us today, a demo, which will be the first that we've ever done here on the podcast. So I want to thank you, Ronnie, for proposing it. Um, before we, I let you get started, what can you tell me about the setup or the scenario that we're about to listen to? So Kate and I worked on this together. It's based on an actual case I had many years ago. Um, all the names and details have been changed. Um, where I was cross-examining a witness in a contested divorce case. Georgia is one of the only states in the country where you can go to a jury on a divorce case. Most states don't allow that, but you can go to a jury on spousal support, property division, um, not on any issues of custody. So it was a contested, high net worth divorce. And so that's the setup for this. Um, I I think it'll be pretty self-explanatory. All right. So I've asked you to uh, have a, just a terrible witness, and I will clear the floor and let you have it. Okay. So Kate's going to be our terrible witness, and then afterwards we'll talk about a couple of things we we did. Okay. So Miss Jones, you're requesting spousal support. I mean, look, I'm only asking for what I'm entitled to. Um, my ex-wife should not be able to avoid taking care of the kids. So yes, you are asking for spousal support. Look, I need to take care of the kids. Hey, let, let's go back, Ms. Jones. You understand that child support and spousal support are two different things. I, I mean, I, I guess. And you're requesting child support in this case? Yeah, but like I said, they're her kids too. So yes. And you're also requesting spousal support. Well, everything I have, I spend on the children, right? Like everything goes to my kids. Ms. Jones, we'll have a chance to talk about your spending later. But please answer my question. You are requesting spousal support. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) Ms. Jones, is it your testimony that you're not requesting spousal support? No, that's not my testimony. That's not what I said. You're trying to put words in my mouth. I see what you're doing. Um, I am requesting spousal support. Thank you, Ms. Jones. Ms. Jones, you have a household employee. Yes. His name is Tom Green? Yes, that's correct. Mr. Green works for you 40 hours a week? Yes. Mr. Green is a chauffeur. A chauffeur? I mean, I drive my kids around all the time. Am I a chauffeur? I should get paid for doing all of the driving them around. My ex-wife certainly treated me as a chauffeur. Uh, Ms. Jones, Mr. Green's primary duty is to drive you and your children during the week. 
Yeah, the pri- that's the primary duty. While working, he drives a car owned by you? That's Yes, it's my car. You pay for gas for that car? Yes, I do. It's expensive. It's my car. And I pay for the gas. Thank you, Miss Jones. And we can stop there. I think you got a, a, a little bit of the flavor of a difficult witness there. I love playing a difficult witness, so... <laughs> I do too. Um, I wanted to point out a couple of things that Kate and I incorporated in this demonstration to show. First was just re-asking the question. So when you're dealing with a difficult witness who is trying to avoid your question, your first line of defense is just to re-ask the question. Um, You also saw us go back to these no-fight facts. So when the witness was not agreeing on did she ask for spousal support? We went back to, you are requesting child support. That's a no fight fact. We know the answer is going to be yes. So I did a little bit of a retreat, broke it down and kept asking. One other thing that I did that we wanted to demonstrate was I reversed the question. When she keeps saying, I'm not asking, I don't know what you mean. I don't want you to mean. Try, you can try to get the witness to then commit to what they're doing. So, so you're not asking for spousal support and it forces them to acknowledge what's going on. Um, the other thing I did that was a mistake um, is use the word chauffeur. I shouldn't have done that. It would have been a lot better if I had broken down the question to begin with. You have an employee, how many hours a week does he drive for you? I probably should have started with how many, you know, you have two employees or whatever number and really broken that down. I use that one though, because that is an actual example of a mistake I made during a trial um, on a cross-examination, the chauffeur and everything. I used the word chauffeur and I got in a big discussion with the witness about what's a chauffeur. Is anyone who drives anywhere? Which was just ridiculous. But at the time, I, I couldn't figure out how to get out of it, which means I, I should have been better prepared. And I eventually got there but I did want to demonstrate how your word choice matters as well in cross-examination. And I think, I think that's a great example because that's not something that would be obvious to people. Like if you were, you know, drafting this cross-examination, you'd put in chauffeur and you wouldn't think twice about it. Which is exactly what I did. But it's a great example of how. Yeah, exactly. So it's a great example about how the witness, though, might not agree with that kind of characterization. All right. Well, that was great. That was fun. Um, I know that you've got another one coming up for impeachment, um, but in the meantime, I have uh, some more questions about cross-examination, and I'll address you, Kate, for this one, um, because it has to do with criminal cases. I would like to know how you handle cross-examining a crime victim without seeming like a jerk to everybody else in the courtroom. Um, Is there a deft way to challenge or to push a witness who has been subjected to trauma without at the same time alienating or turning off your fact finders? Yes, this is a great question. Um, I think first, you need to know what your theory of the victim or as defense attorneys call them alleged victim, Um, you need to know what your theory of this person is. Um, Is this person a liar with a vendetta who just wants to kind of stick it to your client? Or is this person mistaken? Does this person, did this person genuinely experience something, but maybe doesn't have all of the facts to 
make an accurate determination of what exactly happened or who exactly the perpetrator was. Um, because the jurors will give you some leeway with a victim who is very obviously lying about something. Um, but they won't give you that same leeway with a witness who is mistaken or a witness who just doesn't know enough. So you really need to know what your theory of that person is. And then second, you've got to remember that Cross is about, ultimately, about getting facts that you need to argue during closing. So you don't, exactly what Ronnie said before, Cross doesn't have to be Cross. You don't um, have to argue with the witness. You don't have to ask super confrontational questions. That's not a requirement of Cross. So keeping that in mind, our tone can be understanding and we can still be effective and sometimes more effective. Um, so for example, you can take the kind of tone of voice where you're conveying the message that the victim is trying their best, but they just made a mistake and that's okay, right? Everyone makes a mistake sometimes. Um, and that cross with that tone can still get you to the end result of collecting all of those facts that you need for closing. Um, another example is that your tone through cross can convey a message that the victim is grieving and is understandably wanting to find answers um, and looking for somebody to hold responsible, um, right? That's a natural and normal response to trauma. Um, and again, you can take that tone and still get the facts that you need to argue during closing. So when appropriate, come from a place of understanding. The jurors will appreciate that. And also the coming with the approach that somebody is mistaken or somebody just doesn't understand something or you know something of that nature is easier for the jurors to swallow right it's hard to push jurors to the conclusion that somebody's lying you need a lot of evidence and a lot of uh, facts built up to be able to convince a jury that somebody has a vendetta and that they're lying um, it takes less work and it's less of a burden for lack of a better phrase to try to convince a jury that somebody is just mistaken because people make mistakes all the time. So that's understandable. So that sort of kind of theory of, of the victim is going to be easier for the witness to, uh, for the jurors to swallow. Um, and in terms like specifically of victims who have been subject to trauma, you definitely do not want to belittle their perceived experience, right? We don't want to ignore it. Um, the jurors are not going to like that either. And it, you can run into a lot of trouble, too, when the jurors don't don't agree with your theory. So if you if if the jurors believe that the victim has experienced trauma, but you as a lawyer are trying to make that victim out to be a liar, but the jurors don't agree that that person's a liar, you're going to lose credibility with the jurors, the jurors really, really quickly. So you definitely do not want to do that in a courtroom. Among the people the jury really likes, attorneys aren't going to be high on the list most of the time. They're going to identify with the witnesses more than the attorneys for the most part. And before you attack someone, the jury really has to already be with you. They have to think that person deserves it um, before you go in with that really aggressive cross-examination. Because um, like Kate said, they're they're not going to appreciate it if they don't think it's justified. Either they already feel that way or you've really, you're really going to be able to show that they're untruthful. 
What about using demonstrative evidence during cross? Is there anything special to know or to remember about effectively using demonstratives? So the one thing I would say is, and I love a demonstrative. I do. I love a timeline. I love a blow up. I love a demonstrative. But you should not use anything on cross-examination that requires any level of cooperation whatsoever from the witness. So you have to assume that the witness is not going to cooperate with you. So, for example, if you're having a witness label something or you're having a witness point something out, you still need to be leading them and you don't need to give up any of your control while using that demonstrative. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but it's really got to be thought out and planned because you've got to maintain that control while you're using it. And I think Ronnie's point is an excellent one because I see so many new attorneys that when they're when they have the demonstrative, they become very distracted with the use of the demonstrative that they forget that they're supposed to be asking leading questions and they start back with the open ended questions. Um, so I think that's so important to remember and um, and that you as the lawyer, you know, unless the judge says otherwise, you can do the annotating of the exhibit, the writing on the exhibit. You don't have to let the witness do that. Um, Again, as long as the judge says that that's okay, um, you don't have to give up that control. I, yeah, I see attorneys do the same thing when they start handling evidence on cross. They start asking open-ended questions rather than continuing to lead. So I think that's really, you've got, even with demonstrative evidence, you have to be leading, you have to be in control. And even more so, like Kate said at the beginning, it's not fact-finding, it's illustrating those facts to the jury. So you can't use a demonstrative in a way that you're trying to elicit new facts from the witness, I would say. As counsel, a lot of your focus of cross is in actually doing the thing, you know, conducting an examination of your witness. But there's another aspect to it too, which is that you are, you need to help your own witness um, prepare and be ready for their time on the stand. Kate, how should we prepare our own witnesses to be cross-examined? Two main points. I think identifying the issues that are going to come up, and along with that is informing the witness of the other side's theory of the case so that they have kind of a framework for the rest of the witness prep to know exactly what they're going to be up against. Um, and then number two, role-playing. I think role-playing across examination with your witness is so important so that they can get a taste of what it feels like to be under that pressure. Then you also get to practice the good, you know, the good witness habits, I guess you could say, um, right? Like only answering the question that's being asked. And if you don't remember something, you can say you don't remember. Um, and all of those other really good witness prep tidbits. So those are my two biggest tips, I would say, for, for, for preparing your witness for cross-examination. Yeah, a lot of people are concerned, um, which makes sense, of where's the line between preparing your witness and coaching your witness. And everything Kate just talked to you about, that's preparing your witness, making sure they understand the theme, the theory, the legal theory of the case, um, role-playing. Um, when I did, I was on the civil side for most of my practice. So there we have discovery. So most of the time, if the party is your witness um, that you're preparing for cross, they've 
given answers into interrogatories or requests for admission, and they have often already done a deposition. So giving them the opportunity to review their prior answers, to look at their deposition testimony, all of that is preparing them. You really can't just be totally hands off. You have an obligation to prepare your witness. What you can't do is coach them, which is, um, you know, encouraging them to be dishonest, encouraging them to withhold facts, encouraging them to answer in a way that might not technically be untruthful, but is certainly in spirit untruthful. Um, you, you can't do that. I don't write out, I don't script answers for witnesses. We will role play and we'll talk about those general points that Kate covered. Um, and if they are a party, that means they've been in the courtroom during the testimony of prior witnesses. Um, they've seen your opening statement. And all of that is part of preparation as well as talking to them about it. Um, one thing I'll also um, note, and I touched on this a little earlier too, is you also have a duty to make sure your witness understands any um, rulings by the judge that might affect their testimony. So an example is if a judge, and this is from my own practice, um, as you can tell, lots of people like to tell war stories about their biggest wins. I like to tell people the things I did wrong. So maybe someone can learn from it. But um, I had a case where we won a motion to suppress a prior conviction. So no one in the trial could mention the witness's prior conviction. Um, we didn't really expect to win it. it. It was really, it was good. It was one of the first tries, cases I ever tried. And I, I told the witness about it, but I did not do an adequate job prepping them for how that ruling affected their testimony and things they might say that would undo the ruling, what we call opening the door. So the witness, and it was a fair question by the cross-examiner, it really was. Um, they weren't trying to elicit testimony that had been kept out, but they asked a question and the witness answered in a way that mentioned, and the specifics was she mentioned not wanting to go back to jail. And she said, I don't, didn't want to go back to jail. And that opened the door for the prior conviction, which was why she was in jail in the first place. Um, and, you know, we'd prepped, we'd talked about it, but I don't know that she totally understood how that specific answer could impact the, ju the judge's ruling and undo it. And everything worked out in this case, but... To me, that was a great lesson on, I've got to make sure my witness also understands what's happening in the courtroom. Well, uh, it sounds like you learned from your mistakes and uh, Ronnie, so did we. So thank you for being so self-effacing with um, these stories that you're sharing today. Um, let's move on to the second part of the interview, which is all about impeachment. Kate, what are the purposes of impeachment? So impeachment is showing the jurors that um, the witness is unworthy of belief, right? So you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can do that with a prior conviction. You can do that by showing bias, by showing that the witness didn't have an opportunity to see what they think they saw, um, that the witness was under the influence of some sort of mind-altering substance. Um, you can also do that with um, 
a, a prior inconsistent statement. So the witness previously testified that the traffic light was red. They come to trial and now they're saying the traffic light was green and you can impeach them with that prior statement to show that what they're saying on the stand in front of the jurors is unworthy of belief. Um, you know, a, a related impeachment to that is impeachment by omission, where they, you know, would have included a fact in a prior statement, but did not, um, which is also pretty common. Uh, but the most fun impeachment, I think, during trial is that impeachment by an inconsistent statement. <laughs> Power and impeachment to me is less about the, ab- the specific fact that you prove is untrue, but about showing the jury that everything the witness says is suspect. Um, I watched a trial. I watched it live a couple of years ago. Um, and the witness was caught in an impeachment on something kind of relatively minor. It was big enough to impeach on, but it did not have a strong bearing on guilt or innocence of the defendant. But it was done early on in the cross-examination. And it was almost as if you could see a change in the jury that once they saw that the defendant had lied about one fact, everything in the rest of their cross-examination was suspect. And everything they just said in direct examination was suspect as well. I mean, really, because it was almost as if you could see the change. And it was very powerful, that impeachment. Right. And in, in some jurisdictions, for example, Colorado, you cannot call a witness a liar. For example, you cannot say that, you know, during closing, you can't say that the witness lied. Um, So impeachment is a way to show the jury without saying those words. Are there any dangers to watch out for in impeachment? Yes. (laughs) Yes, a lot. There are a lot of dangers. Number one, um, and this is strictly speaking of impeachment by an inconsistent statement, um, if you cannot easily locate that prior inconsistent statement and you're fumbling around um, with sometimes hundreds of thousands of pages <laughs> trying to find the inconsistent statement, you're in danger of completely losing the jury, confusing the jury, and the wind is taken out of your sails. Um, also, if it's not a true inconsistency, uh, that can be a major problem. So if it's if it's a minor inconsistency that can be easily explained by the witness. Oh, I, you know, I, I did say that uh, previously, but here's the reason that I said that. And it's not really inconsistent because, right, whatever reason, um, then you're going to have a problem because you're not really, it's not really impeachment by an inconsistent statement if the witness can explain the, easily explain the inconsistency. So those are two major problems. What do you think, Ronnie? Yeah, I agree. It it can be really dangerous, especially when it's not a true inconsistency. Because jurors are humans. We're humans. Everyone, there are some mistakes that are easy to make and easy to understand. If in a deposition I referred to um, my sister-in-law, but really I meant my um sister or there's some easy explanation for why i said what i was saying and it doesn't um it's not a true inconsistency it makes you look i don't maybe a little petty to go for that kind of impeachment and also if you impeach on every little thing like that it takes away some of the power 
um, when you really need to use that tool. It's a, it's a very powerful tool in your arsenal and you don't want to use it all the time. Um, one way to protect against that, I think, and especially on the civil side in many jurisdictions, you have videotaped depositions. And so often if you can play for the jury, the witness in their own words um, with the inconsistent statement and give them the opportunity to see the demeanor and see how sure they sounded, it can be more effective than just reading it as well. Just reading it, sometimes it doesn't look like a big deal the way it does if you have that videotape deposition. And Ronnie, your point about not, um, not impeaching over every single little fact made me think of something else. Um, all lawyers, but particularly new lawyers, when they hear the witness testify to something inconsistent on the stand, they automatically want to impeach without thinking about whether, number one, what Ronnie was saying, is it important enough to impeach? But number two, maybe what they said is actually helpful for your case. And maybe you don't want to impeach. Maybe you want to let that trial testimony stand, even though it is different from that prior statement. So that's another kind of thing you want to watch out for. Make sure you don't fall into that trap of just impeaching at everything that's different just because you can. Yeah, that's a great point. I have definitely seen young lawyers impeach on something where the in-court testimony, which is all the jury hears, they're not going to see that prior statement if you don't bring it in, is actually much better for you. Great. So you have another demo lined up for us. This one is on impeachment. Is it going to be the same um, scenario as before with Mrs. Jones or have you got something else? No, this one's a little different. Um, I think it, it'll be pretty obvious, though, to our listeners. It's an, an employment case. Great. So I will be the advocate and Ronnie will be the witness, Miss Smith. Miss Smith, you applied for a job with the state of NIDA, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. The Department of, the Department of Natural Resources? Yes. You applied for that job on January 3rd, 2020. Yes. On direct examination, you stated, I never misrepresented my level of education during the interview. Um, that's right. I, I never did. You know, I told them I had attended Stetson, which is where I went to college. Um, so that's right. I, I told them the truth. You attended Stetson for two semesters, correct? That's right. I went to Stetson, which is what I told them. You didn't graduate. Um, I didn't. That's why I never told them I graduated. If they had asked, I would have told them I left after a year. I really wasn't trying to hide anything. I told them the truth. You didn't graduate. Nope, and didn't tell them that, that I did. As part of your application to Nita, you submitted a resume. Yeah, I believe so. Your Honor, permission to approach the witness. Ms. Smith, you recognize the document I just handed you? Um, yes, this is my resume. Right. It's a copy of the resume you submitted to Nita with your application. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it. Yeah, I don't know if you've changed anything, but it looks like it. This is your name on top? Yes. And it's a true and correct copy of your resume? Yes, it looks like one. You see the word education about halfway down? Yes. All capital letters? Yes, I see the word education. It's in bold font? Yes. Read silently as I read out loud. 
the first line under education. Stetson University, BA in History and Philosophy. I read that correctly, didn't I? Um, yes, but you'll notice I didn't put a year or anything beside it. I was pursuing a BA at Stetson, so that's not a lie. If they would have asked, I would have explained. You did not receive a BA from Stetson? No. All right, nothing further. So you can see with that impeachment that um, Ronnie was being a little wishy-washy about and giving me a hard time, which was great. It's a real life example um, about what she put on her resume versus what she told um, people during her hiring process um, with Nita. And ultimately she had to admit because of her, you know, after I showed her her resume, that she did not actually graduate and earn her B BA like she said she had. I want to also point out one thing Kate didn't do, which is really important in impeachment, is she didn't ask one question too many. So it would have been really tempting at the end for Kate to say, so you lied during your interview. I mean, she's basically established that. But that gives me another opportunity to explain why what I did wasn't really lying. And the jury's already seen it. They don't need to hear that. On her closing argument, Kate's going to talk about how what I did was untruthful. She doesn't need to try to wrap, you know, tie it up in a bow during the impeachment. One thing that's important during impeachment is to really emphasize what the testimony on um, direct was so that the jurors know that what you're about to do when you impeach is important. So, um, so I tried to really emphasize with incredulity the fact that that she never she stated on direct that she never misrepresented her level of education during the interview, um, which I think a lot of people who are just kind of going through the motions, they just state you know what that prior and consistent or what the what the testimony was on direct or, or during trial, what that trial testimony was without emphasizing it for the jurors. And then it kind of just gets lost. And again, the wind just comes out of your sails. Yeah, I've seen attorneys really effectively in court kind of make a big deal about holding up their legal pad and saying, I, I wrote it down exactly what you said and reading it back to the witness. Um, it's not like on TV where you turn to the court reporter and say, please read that back. That's not how it goes. So you've got to really make sure you are um, capturing what was said on direct examination and then using it powerfully like Kate suggested. Great. Well, th those were both very good demos and um, really highlighted the points that you made. Final question before we move on to our signature sign-off question, and I will direct it to you, Ronnie, first. If you have just one best trial tip for cross-examination to offer our listeners, what would it be? Um, it's the same tip that I would give for most other trial advocacy skills is be yourself. When you walk into a courtroom, you don't take off your personality. You don't um, get rid. It's not like in Harry Potter where you put the wand to your ear and out come the memories and you get rid of your prior life uh, experiences and everything that brought you there that day. You don't do that. You, you're still you in the courtroom. 
And so you should be yourself in the courtroom. Your style doesn't have to be the same as anyone else's style. Um, it's yours. You're going to develop it. I think there's some things you need to be, which are respectful, reasonable, um, tr truthful. You don't need to be playing games. But aside from that, if your style is, um, are, is more straightforward, that's great. If your style is more conversational, that's fine too. Um, there is no one way to be a trial attorney and there's no one way to do a cross-examination. You should bring your, bring your whole self to the cross-examination. Great. And I love the uh, way to remember it, which is to think of Harry Potter. Right. Kate, <laughs> what is your number one tip for cross-examination? My number one tip for cross is to make sure that your questions are rooted in the witness's prior statement. Um, as much as humanly possible. Your control of the witness is only as strong, or you only have control of the witness to the extent that you're um, able to impeach the witness if they testify inconsistently. So if you have no backup, you're just going to be stuck with what the witness says. That backup, either by a prior you know, statement, or you know you can impeach through another witness's statement or something. That will give you confidence in your cross-examination. That will make sure that the witness testifies consistent with the way you expect them to testify. It makes things go so much more smoothly. Witness control, all of that. So as much as possible, root it down into prior testimony or prior statement. Great. Thanks. So signature sign-off question, and Ronnie, I will start with you again. If you could have acted as lead counsel for any trial, whether present day or in the past, what trial would you choose and why? Okay, so I'm a regular listener, so I knew this question was coming. Um, so I have thought <laughs> about it. Um, and I'm actually going to shout out a case litigated by an all-star team. So not just one person, including Nita's own Harry Schneider. He represented Salim Hobden, who was a detainee at Guantanamo Bay. So the case has a long history, won't go into it procedurally. Um, spoiler, it involves the Supreme Court. But there was eventually a military trial where Henry, and, or excuse me, Harry and that team um, tried the case. And it was just really amazing. I would love to be a part of that. Um, those folks are doing the kind of work that makes 95% of people go to law school in the first place. And that shifts, you know, during the three years, but that kind of work to ensure everyone gets the rights they are entitled to is really impressive to me. So I would have wanted to be part of the Hamden team with Harry Schneider. Great. How about you, Kate? I love Roddy's answer. That's such a good, that's such a good answer. Um, so as a criminal defense attorney, of course, I'm thinking of notorious not guilties. So <laughs> I'm thinking immediately O.J. Simpson and Casey Anthony, right, from just recent American history um, of notorious not guilties. I think I would, I would love to be a part of the discussions on those defense teams. Um, but even more than that, I think I have the same curiosity as the rest of America. What what did the client tell the lawyer about what really happened? I'd give anything to to be there, a fly on the wall for that conversation. So those are my two. Fun. 
Well, thank you both so much for joining us and doing the work to prepare those demos. I think that they really highlighted the points that you were trying to make. And it was just fun to meet with you both here on the podcast. And, um, you know, before I go, I want to mention for anyone listening who is registered for the NIDA Women in Trial program in Seattle next week, which is sold out. And we'll be back again next fall. So we'll be reopening the doors for registration next spring, 2023, that Ronnie and Kate will be among your fantastic faculty members. And lucky you, you'll get to learn from these ladies directly. Yeah, we'd love to see you. Um, I've told some stories on myself, but there are more. I'll tell you about the time I wrecked a client's rental car. It'll be great. (laughs) Come to Women in Trial. I'll tell you about the time that my client testified I was hiding evidence (laughs) in front of a jury. (laughs) And Kate, you're also teaching in San Diego in October. Is that right? Yes. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun as well. Yeah. I looked it up this afternoon before we um, met here, and I noticed that it's a beachfront hotel. So things could be worse for (laughs) studying trial skills. It's a rough rough life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks again, ladies. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcy. Did you know that NIDA is made up of over 800 practicing lawyers, law professors, and judges from around the world who teach, mentor, present, and write for us? NIDA also includes a team of in-house professionals who take care of this organization every single day and who are dedicated to our mission of training and developing skilled, ethical legal advocates just like you. Why? Because we believe in a fair and impartial adversarial justice system, and it is our mission to help level the legal playing field for all those who find themselves on it. You're a part of that too, and we love hearing from you. So if you enjoyed this podcast episode, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us your review at customerservice at nita.org. We love hearing from our listeners. It lets us know that we're giving you the advocacy intel that you need, and it pushes us onward in our mission. May the Record Reflect is a NIDA Studio 71 production. NIDA. We are advocacy-enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.